Welcome to Public Health On Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Our focus is the novel coronavirus. I'm Josh Sharfstein, a faculty member at Johns Hopkins and also a former secretary of Maryland's Health Department. Our goal with this podcast is to bring evidence and experts to help you understand today's news about the novel coronavirus and what it means for tomorrow. If you have questions, you can email them to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. That's publichealthquestion at jhu.edu for future podcast episodes. Today, Stephanie Desmond talks to Crystal Watson of the Center for Health Security at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. They discuss a tried-and-true method of slowing the spread of infections using contact tracers and how ramping up to 100,000 of these disease detectives nationwide could allow us to slow the spread of coronavirus. Let's listen. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks a lot. First, let's define contact tracing. Sure. This is a core tool of public health. This is not something new that we're, we're just inventing now. This has been used for decades, perhaps centuries, to identify people who are sick, to isolate them at home if they have an infectious disease so that they don't spread it to others, but then also to identify who they've been in close contact with over the period that they've had symptoms. So that will help us contact those people, ask them to stay in quarantine for the duration of the incubation period for the virus, and monitor themselves for symptoms. So in essence, what this does is this allows us to begin breaking chains of transmission. So if those quarantined individuals are staying at home for 14 days, then they, in theory, won't be passing this virus along to someone else, and the chain of transmission ends there. Mm -hmm. Now, your plan calls for serious scaling up across the country. You're talking about 100,000 contact tracers, an estimated cost of $3.6 billion. How is this different than what is done in local departments? Right. So state and local health departments do this work all the time, in particular for sexually transmitted infections. This is a, a common practice where you identify contacts and notify them that they may have been exposed. But they do it at a much smaller scale. So there may be a few individuals in uh, an average health department that are dedicated to this work but it's not a whole army of public health workers, which is what we need now. And the reason we need that many people is because right now COVID-19 or the SARS-CoV-2 virus is fairly widespread in our communities and we don't have a good handle on where that transmission is occurring. So we need more people to be able to help identify cases and trace contacts. A cornerstone of this work would have to be more testing. Isn't that right? Yeah, uh, testing is going to be exceptionally helpful in this process to help confirm that someone has the virus and also help confirm that if a contact of someone develops symptoms that they are indeed sick with COVID-19. But it's also not a prerequisite completely. We can do this work even if we don't have the tests. If a clinician has a presumptive diagnosis for someone who has the symptoms of COVID-19, you can still take the follow-on public health steps of isolating that person at home or in a healthcare facility if they're more seriously ill, and then identifying their contacts and asking them to quarantine. So 
these diagnostic tools are really helpful. They're going to help us do this at a much wider scale, but we can still take the essential public health measures even in the absence of a diagnostic test. So I guess one of the things that could be really helpful with this is technology. I've read that in South Korea and Singapore, they've used tracking software. Is that A, something that could really be helpful here? And B, is that something that would fly in the United States? Yeah, we're looking at these technologies, the potential of these technologies for being workforce multipliers. They're not going to solve the problem on their own if we do decide to employ them. We still require this workforce to do the essential job of identifying and tracing contacts. But what they can do is help us reach more people. So there are a couple of technologies that can help when applied to this problem. First are kind of applications to help contact tracers do their work by contacting and interviewing someone and recording that information. That's a pretty basic tool that I think public health departments all over the country already use, but we can scale that up here. The next thing that might be a little bit more controversial is using technologies to help identify people that have been in close contact with the case and notify them that they have been in close contact. So an example of that might be you are infected with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and you unknowingly went to the grocery store and had maybe mild symptoms you didn't really recognize, but you were in, in contact with some people. You might not know who those people are. In fact, you probably don't. So finding them through public health means is going to be a little more difficult. What technologies could do is identify people that have a cell phone that were in your vicinity at that time and then notify them over their cell phone that they may have been exposed, give them steps to take after that, and put them in contact with, with a public health official. There are a few different types of technologies that might be useful for this, and they kind of range in their invasiveness in terms of our privacy. One technology that's being proposed and has been used in different places around the world is Bluetooth. With Bluetooth, and I'm not a, I'm not a Bluetooth expert, but this is my understanding, with Bluetooth, there is much less identifiable information that's that's conveyed. So it's you have Bluetooth on your phone, you're using it constantly for other things already, and phones ping back and forth when they have their Bluetooth on. So that package of information doesn't include your identifiers. It's basically an encrypted package of information. But it would allow us to identify whether you've been in some sort of vicinity of a person who's been sick. Mm-hmm. But it does seem like something that privacy advocates would be concerned about. Yeah, I can understand that. I think we should take these privacy concerns very seriously, and we should have conversations with with any companies that would work to develop these apps, have conversations with the, the general public about what their risk tolerance is for for these privacy issues and how they compare that to the risk of not knowing if, if you've been in contact with somebody with COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Me personally, I if I were the person, the close contact, I've been in a grocery store with someone, I would like to see receive that text message that says, you may have been exposed. You should probably stay home for 14 days because I don't want to expose other people if I actually have, have been infected. Mm-hmm. So that's my personal risk tolerance, but um, I think we definitely need to pay close attention to that and, and not dismiss it as something that, that's not important because it is. From what I have read in your report, it is very important to find every single case, every single case. Why is that so important? 
Yeah. So we want to find as many cases as possible. The ideal is every single case. What we're observing from other places around the world who have gotten these epidemics of COVID-19 under good control is that they have a very small percentage of people who whose exposure is unknown. So they can't be traced back to a previously known or diagnosed case of COVID-19. Um, so that's what we're seeing is the factor in, in actually being able to manage this on an ongoing basis. And then subsequently allowing for lifting of some of these social distancing measures. Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit about the goal here, which is to lift some of these social distancing measures. Is there a concern that we could do this wrong and that we could end up back in the same place we started? Absolutely. That is definitely a concern. What we are stressing is that we need to have these specific capacities and capabilities. We need the ability to identify cases, contact trace, also do routine public health surveillance um, so that we can understand if there's a resurgence of the virus. And we also need to make sure that our hospitals are ready for an additional surge, that they have the supplies they need, they have the plans that they need in place, that they are not under stress when we open things up again and lift the social distancing measures because what we want to avoid most of all is overwhelming our healthcare system because when we see that the healthcare system, that hospitals are overwhelmed, then the death rates go way up with this disease because people aren't able to receive the care that they need because of the surge in cases. So there may be some trial and error here and we need to, but it's important to have that surveillance in place so we know what's going on. In theory, if we are able to find the vast majority of cases and trace their contacts and put them in home quarantine, that will limit the amount of surge that we can experience. And so hopefully we will never be back in the place where we have been over the last few weeks where this is just spreading widely and fairly unencumbered. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've seen the recent research, I think it was out of Harvard, talking about how we might have to engage in some sort of social distancing, not just for the next month, but perhaps the next few years. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's hard to put a timeline on it, but in particular, the time period we're looking at now is between when we begin to open things up and when we have hopefully a safe and effective vaccine that's widely available. That will be a game changer if we can get to that. But in that intermediary time, which may be months, many months potentially, we may need to, even if we open things up and get people back to work to a greater extent, I think we are going to have to live in some modified way. We're not going back immediately to what life looked like before this virus hit us. So if a business opens, it may still be necessary to have people social distance when they're inside the business. So keeping that six feet apart, or it may still be necessary to, if we open schools, for example, to have fewer kids together or have alternating days for school, something like that. We have to figure out what these modifications are, but I don't think we're going to be in a position for a while to go back completely to normal. And in particular, we need to protect those that are especially vulnerable in our population. So those who are over the age of 60, those who have underlying health conditions that have lung conditions, 
they are going to continue to need to take extra precautions because they are a majority of them are not yet immune to this virus. Mm-hmm. One interesting element of expanding the contact tracing workforce is that we are currently experiencing major unemployment in this country and that these jobs don't require an advanced degree. Is that something that you think will help us to sort of get this moving faster? Yeah, I I think it can have a couple of benefits. And in addition to the public health benefits we've already discussed, upgrading this workforce, massively expanding it, I think we have the opportunity to include volunteers who want to do this, but also to hire people who may be out of work because of of this pandemic itself. We have colleagues at, at Johns Hopkins who are working on trainings. They're doing that really well. They know contact tracing very, very well. And so what, what we've come to the conclusion of is that this, this training can be done quickly and it doesn't require someone who is very well versed in public health or medicine. So we do think that we can include lay people in this workforce and they can be effective. Terrific. Uh, Crystal Watson, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Public Health on Call, a new podcast from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Please send questions to be covered in future podcasts to publichealthquestion at jhu.edu. This podcast is produced by Josh Sharfstein, Lindsay Smith-Rogers, and Lamare Morales. Audio production by Niall Owen-McCusker and Spencer Greer, with support from Chip Hickey. Distribution by Nick Moran. Thank you for listening.